Any of you listen to the uh, podcast, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats? All right, then you're not going to know this joke. Good. It reminds me of 48, I can still do some cool things. So this joke goes, uh, guy's having an interview for a job, and it's going really, really well. And the interviewer towards the end says, um, could you tell me about a weakness? Guy's getting interviewed, said, I'm honest. Guy's doing the interview, says, I don't think honesty is a weakness. Guy responds, I don't give a shit what you think. So <laughs> that joke reminds me of the characters in today's movie. Uh, Lady Bird, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it is a story about this character who christens herself Lady Bird. We don't find out the reason why at all, other than she's a teenager. And teenagers want to do things like establish their own identity, right? Developmentally, it makes sense. And she and her family... They do not get along with each other at all. This movie is set in 2002 in Sacramento, California. And it's in Lady Bird's senior year in high school. And she is totally focused on getting out of Sacramento. She says, I want to go to New York or Connecticut or someplace where they have culture like New Hampshire where writers can live in the woods. She wants to get out. She wants to establish her own way. And the family, her family, as we meet them, they're barely hanging on by the skin of their fingernails to the, their middle class status. They are really, really struggling. This desire to get out, even though my upbringing, where I never wanted for anything, was quite different in that way. This desire to get out, this desire to be from someplace cooler, this is what I recall about my childhood. I was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1970. I lived there for all of a year and a half before my parents did me the indignity of moving me to Allentown, Pennsylvania for the next 13 and a half years until we moved back to New York City. And so this story, I don't remember, but my mom tells me that on the first day of sleepaway camp, this fancy sleepaway camp that I went to in 1981, 11 years old, and I got there and I met the counselor for the first time. And the counselor asked, where are you from, Ken? Guess what I said? Brooklyn. I wanted to be from someplace else. Lady Bird wants to be from someplace else. Now, in some ways, we've all seen this movie, this story before. It's a coming of age story. It's about a first romantic love. First friend coming out to you as gay, who in this case turns out to be the person that Lady Bird had fallen in love with. Turns out that she also has her first sexual experience in this movie with a guy who turns out to be a complete jerk. It's about her first job and her first time applying to college and her first time living away from home. Except this isn't just an average coming-of-age story. It's sharp and witty and warm. I love the way this movie reflects on her 18th birthday where she gets up first thing in the morning, Lady Bird does, and she walks down to the local convenience store and she thrusts out her ID that says she's 18 and says, I would like a playgirl and a pack of camel lights and a lottery ticket. 
And she has like one puff of the cigarette and throws it out and skims through the playgirl. And I don't think she even scratches out the lottery ticket. But that's just kind of the character that she is, which is that she's really likable. However, (laughs) she's also really difficult. She lies to her teachers, to her parents. When she is truthful, she is brutally truthful, not in a skillful way. This picture of her and her family in the car, if you can see her dad looking kind of forlornly out the window. In too many coming-of-age stories, the father, if a father is present, is kind of rendered as a doofus or abusive. That's not the truth in this story. Dad actually is a very loving presence in his daughter's life. He's also deeply depressed and has lost his job. Now, if you can see the look on Lady Bird's mom's face, that's pretty much the scowl she holds throughout the entire movie. I'll give you just an experience of how, and there are many in this movie, of how a seemingly fine interaction can go awry. They're shopping for Lady Bird's prom dress. And everything seems like it's going okay. And a simple question from mom to Lady Bird. Are you tired? No. I thought maybe you were tired because you keep dragging your feet. Ugh. Lady Bird, you're being passive aggressive. Why not just say to me directly, pick up your feet? And silence. Every interaction between Lady Bird and her mom in this movie until close to the very end is frictive, is tense. They don't talk with each other. They barely even talk to each other. They talk about each other with other people. And when they talk to each other, they're really talking at each other. It leads to a lot of discord and disharmony. It reminded me of an article I read going on about a year and a half ago now from the Buddhist online magazine Tricycle. And it's um, an article I've returned to over and over again, even though in my life I don't have the same life experience as the author. It's about the relationship between her and her teenage son, Emilio. The writer is Beth Roth. And she's talking about what is a cardinal virtue in the Buddhist tradition. Right speech. Speech which means we forswear gossip, and we forswear lying, and right speech has also been conceptualized and expressed as saying what is helpful, what is true, And what is kind? Not lying, not gossiping, saying what is true, what is helpful, and what is kind. Now, this is a core aspect of Beth Roth's expression of her faith tradition. And by the way, just let me say right versus wrong speech is not allowed. It's like saying bad words you're not allowed to say. Right speech is more about ways of communicating that lead us to diminish suffering and increase the potential for our happiness and fulfillment. Beth Roth has a teenage son. 
And she used to get along with this child so well when he was a little kid. And then he becomes a teenager. And the interactions that used to be so simple are not simple any longer. So often their conversations end with him storming out of the room and Beth feeling, but what did I say? What went wrong here? Those of us who have been teenagers or those of you who are parenting teenagers or have parented teenagers may recognize the truth of this kind of interaction. And Beth knows, she's a smart person, there's nothing wrong with her son. This is what teenagers do. But she's honest in these repeated interactions that are misunderstandings hurt. And so she tries to apply this lens of right speech, of speech that opens up paths of understanding, diminish suffering and increase opportunity for happiness. She tries to really integrate that into her relationship with Emilio, with her teenage son. Something clicks for her when she recognizes that when he storms out of the room, she gets in touch with how painful that is for her. And she shifts to recognize there must be something really painful happening for him. I don't have to fully understand it. I don't have to figure it out. I just have to understand that something painful is going on for him. When I read this article, one of my favorite quotes kept coming up for me. It's by the Christian theologian Paul Tillich, who says, The first duty of love is to listen. The first duty of love is to listen. And Beth Roth, even though she doesn't actually quote Paul Tillich's words in her article, that's actually what she says. That right speech depends upon right listening. And because she isn't just willing to say, my son's a teenager, he's a jerk. Developmentally, this is why he will eventually leave home because we can't stand each other anymore. No. She decides that she is going to figure out some new ways to communicate with him. And so she asks him, as part of this practice of right speech, write down four things that make you really happy. He comes up with, you know, getting a good grade in school, having a good time with his friends, doing really well in his martial arts. And she asked, write down four things that make you really sad or angry. Not getting along with my friends. Having you remind me for the millionth time I have to clean up my room. And she writes down these sentences. And then she asks, I'm going to read them back to you. And I want you to recognize what comes up within you as I share these things with you. I'm going to read his words. Not surprisingly, for the different negative statements, Emilio reported, I'm closed up inside and I don't want to hear it. My muscles are tense. My feelings are hurt. My chest is tight and rigid. I make myself hard inside. I want to interrupt and tell you to shut up. My reply feels stuck in my throat. 
My skin feels like it's on fire. In response to positive statements, Emilio noticed flickers of happiness rise up in my body. There's a lot more life inside. I feel space inside of me like a big gate swinging open. There's joy in my mind and in my heart. What I would put before us all today, I know it's true for me. All of the same stuff is going on inside of us when we're communicating with each other all the time. But sometimes, I would say oftentimes, because of our conditioning, because of our desire to say the right thing, or what we think is the right thing, or because we're afraid of silence, or a million other reasons that you might carry around with you, as I do as well, too. We don't take that time to pause and recognize that the words we speak and the words that we hear are always having that same response within us, the same reactions going on within our bodies. Now, it'd be great, right, if Emilio and Beth, his mom, figured this out and all of their miscommunication problems just totally disappeared. But that's not the truth of our lives. That's why right speech is a practice. Over and over and over again. Listening before talking. Hearing what another person is saying. And also listening to ourselves. The whole self. Not just the thinking part of the brain, the formulating words part of the brain. But listening attentively. Bless you. This kind of attentiveness opens the way towards healing. Now, I mentioned this is part of the Buddhist tradition. You might know that it actually is part of what's called the Eightfold Path. It's one of the core ethical precepts of Buddhism. I'm not going to pay attention, I'm paying attention to them, but I'm not going to talk about all eight aspects. But you see that right speech, right above it is right intention. To practice right speech, we also have to know what is the intention that we bring to our conversations with each other? Is it to diminish our anxiety? Is it to make ourselves right? Is it to make ourselves invulnerable? The other really key one for right speech is right concentration. Am I, while I am talking to you, yeah? Uh-huh, I got you. Godzilla's coming to town next Tuesday. Sounds great. <laughs> That's just the most gross form of, you know, not paying attention to someone else. We could have a million things going on in our head and not pay attention. And so the other aspect of this that is key in the practice of right speech is Along with the concentration, right mindfulness. Are we paying attention non-judgmentally to what is coming up for us? Whether we like it or not, what's happening for us? This is why I think Paul Tillich was absolutely right when he said the first duty of love is to listen. One of the things I loved about this movie Lady Bird, is that uh, some of you might know it actually was directed by a person who was raised and still identifies as a Unitarian Universalist, Greta Gerwig. 
She's awesome. She's an amazing actor in her own right. And this is actually unbelievably her first movie she ever made. I cannot wait to see the other movies she puts out. One of the really cool things about this movie is that, yeah, she's Unitarian Universalist, but most of it is uh, set in a parochial Catholic school. And it is uh, kind of a common thing at times for Unitarian Universalists, especially those of you who might have grown up Catholic and felt oppressed or repressed or as if you didn't belong within that tradition, to sometimes talk about Catholicism in some very negative ways. I don't question the truth of anyone's background. And I love that Greta Gerwig, in her representation of this particular parochial school, actually makes very humanizing choices. The nuns, the priests are stern and they're a little out of touch, but they also are caring and insightful. So at one point, Lady Bird is called to the head nun's office because she's done a really stupid, although not terribly harmful, prank. The nun chastised her in class and she wants to get back at her. And so she does that thing where, you know, someone just married and you put the cans on the back of their car, except she writes just married to Jesus. And Lady Bird gets called into the office. The nun actually laughs at it and she says, dear, I didn't just get married to Jesus. It happened 40 years ago. <laughs> and she doesn't punish her. And she actually starts to talk to Lady Bird about something that's going on in Lady Bird's life that actually is causing an awful lot of stress. See, Lady Bird does not do well in school, but she is exceedingly bright and her scores or tests are really, really high. And so she's not sure where or if she's going to get into college. And this head nun says, I read your college essay. You write about Sacramento, about where we're from, with such love. <laughs> Lady Bird is completely stunned. This place, the place I can't wait to get out of. You write about Sacramento with such love. Lady Bird says, I guess I pay attention. And the nun says the thing that really is at the heart of this movie. Don't you think they are the same thing? That love and attention are the same thing. This is what right speech is. To pay attention to ourselves and to the people we're speaking with. I'm going to return to this next month when I am going to preach on the movie that I am most looking forward to. And from Facebook posts, I can probably tell that many of you are most looking forward to it this summer. It's the Mr. Rogers movie. But actually, I want to refer to something I said last week in my message. Which is how often we don't allow ourselves to just recognize the truth of how messy this life is especially when we're communicating or miscommunicating with other people. When we're stressed, when there's a misunderstanding. Sometimes in those moments, the first thing we can vow to do, the best win is simply not losing, not causing more harm. Stopping our very human and still unskillful tendency to make assumptions and projections and to practice something that is at the core of our own expression of faith here at Wellsprings. 
which is living with integrity. To practice listening with humility and vulnerability. Our faith tradition does not say that the goal is to get to the wrongs, get from the wrong side of the line to the right side of the line. No, our tradition invites us to live with integrity. And to do so requires very often that we listen to those parts of ourselves and those parts of other people's lives that might be scary or difficult to face. I'm aware that the last two weeks from this pulpit, myself and Reverend Lee have spoken about what's going on on our southwestern border. And it would be a dereliction of my duty as a minister and as your minister not to at least mention it this morning again. Do so, I want to use words from this person. Some of you might know Brian Stevenson, who is a prophet of love, the highest degree on this earth right now, who has worked with those who are incarcerated, with those that the society wishes to dehumanize and to pretend that they don't exist. Brian Stevenson is also the guiding force behind this monument. It is the Museum of Peace and Justice, which pays attention to the thousands of lives lost, thousands of African-American lives lost to lynching in the history of our country. These are Brian Stevenson's words. And I think they are all about this capacity, even when we do it on the intimate basis, to recognize that when we practice right speech, we are participating in a healing much greater than just ourselves alone. So many of us, he writes, have become afraid and angry. We've become so fearful and vengeful that we've thrown away children discarded the disabled and sanctioned the imprisonment of the sick and the weak, not because they are a threat to public safety or beyond rehabilitation, but because we think it makes us seem tough and less broken. But simply punishing those people who we consider to be broken, walking away from them or hiding them from sight only ensures that they remain broken and we do too. He concludes There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. There is no wholeness outside of our reciprocal humanity. This is a graceful strength. So often right now, strength is perverted into exploitation or domination We're making us think that we can control this life. It doesn't happen that way. Today, I would ask all of us how we might use some of these tools of right speech to practice that graceful strength. The strength that opens with humility and vulnerability to our own lives and to each other. 
and recognize that even if it's just us and one other person, we are participating in exactly that healing that Chris talked about. We are learning to transform our pain and no longer to transmit it. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Breathing in and breathing out, may we remember that in every moment we are receiving information inside of us, around us. In every moment, there is the opportunity to choose to open up rather than to close down. In every moment, the opportunity to recognize that we are born with this amazing capacity to transform even the most painful legacies. And it cannot happen through commands and control. It cannot happen by not paying attention. Truly, may we recognize today that in our speech, in our actions, in our relationships, there is always this invitation again. May we recognize the first duty of love is to listen. Amen.